You know, the great blessing and privilege is we don't have to wait until he takes us home to sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. He is so good and so faithful, so righteous and so just and so kind and so filled with mercy towards us. We ought to be continually thankful for the work that Christ has done to set us free from our sin, to enable us to know him as Lord and Savior. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 3, and we're continuing our look into the dialogue that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And so we learned some things from our time together last week. We learned that Nicodemus was a very influential man, that he was a member of the Pharisees, that he was also a member of of the Sanhedrin, which was a group of the ruling elders or the ruling leaders of the Jewish people, that he was educated and wealthy and probably came from an aristocratic family. And like so many of his counterparts, he did not understand his need to be born again. When Jesus confronted him with this idea of needing to be born from above, this need for spiritual regeneration... Nicodemus was absolutely stunned and had no idea what he was supposed to do. He understood that this was causing him, calling him rather, to start over and to rebuild his life, and most especially his religious life, all the way from scratch. Everything that he had been told, everything that he had taught, everything that he was doing was empty and meaningless and vain, if there was a need for this new birth. So Jesus masterfully confronts Nicodemus with his need. He is stunned and can't even begin to fathom what this is going to mean for his life. And Jesus begins the process of sharing with him of this need to be born again and goes through this presentation of the necessity of this process of regeneration. What's interesting in this dialogue that we have with Nicodemus is not only is there an indictment against Nicodemus personally, but there is a corporate indictment against the nation of Israel for their lack of understanding of what Jesus considers to be biblical principle. When he confronts Nicodemus in verse 10 and says, And you, the teacher of Israel ought to know these things. Now, we could go back and try to find a lot of proof text for why Jesus would say that's true. But we just need to know that Jesus said that was true. Jesus said, you should know better, and we shouldn't have to defend or explain that. We should just accept what Jesus has said. So at this point, when Nicodemus has been made aware of his need to start over from the beginning... This dialogue now transitions into a monologue. You don't hear from Nicodemus again. There's no more words expressed. There are no more questions asked. And this becomes a monologue. And if you remember from our earlier time in the Gospel of John, we know that some of this predates the calling of the rest of the disciples. These events are not recorded in the other Gospels. So this, is an in, this, this indicates here, rather, that this is the first official discourse that Jesus is going to give about himself and about his ministry. 
And I don't believe there's any coincidence that the first discourse of Jesus is going to be centered on his mission of the cross. Penetrating to the depth of the need of Nicodemus and of the nation of Israel and to all of mankind. Let's pick up in John chapter 3. This morning we're going to focus on verses 11 through 21. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So the remaining passage of Scripture we're going to look at here is a continuation of what we talked about last week. And what we're going to see here are two problems and a provision. The first problem that we saw was that Nicodemus was lost and he needed to be born again. And so here we see the problem part two, or the second problem, and that is unbelief. It is the unwillingness to accept the message that is being shared. When Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is the most serious expression that Jesus can use. It is solemnly I testify that we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Now, there's a couple of interesting word plays that take place here in this verse 11. The first one is the word we and the word our. It likely refers to Jesus' testimony and the testimony of John the Baptist, the forerunner, and possibly even the disciples who were sharing with others about this person that has arrived that they firmly believed to be the Messiah. The message is very simply this. It is to repent in order to see the kingdom of God. It is this challenge of being made aware of the need for new birth of regeneration. Now, the plural usage here is a challenge to the we... That Nicodemus, that Nicodemus used in verse 2 when he says that we know, we the Pharisees know that you have come from God because we see the miracles that you are doing. So the Pharisees have some kind of belief that the works that Jesus did indicates that he is from God. And with that basis of understanding, as Nicodemus is hearing these words of Jesus for the very first time, Jesus is saying, you you individually and you plurally, the Pharisees and the nation of Israel, do not accept 
our testimony. You do not believe our message. You have rejected it, even though you have seen the miracles, and you yourself have attested to these things only being able to be done if God be with that individual. They even give to Jesus this title of rabbi, meaning that you are an equal to us, yet they're unwilling to accept the message of this need for regeneration. At its root, unbelief is very simply rejection. Unbelief is rejection. They reject His message. They reject the need for regeneration because they are satisfied in, with their man-made religion and their external appearance of a works-based acceptance of God. They ran around telling everybody how to live their lives. They, as Jesus would call them, were whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, appearing to be proper and properly religious, but on the inside, they were dead. They were like ravenous wolves who were leading the people astray, but they were satisfied, they were pleased with the external appearance that they had portrayed to others, and therefore they were unwilling to accept the message of the need for regeneration. God gave a summary of this very specific example in the prologue that we looked at in chapter 1 when He said that He came to His own and those who were His own, meaning the nation of Israel, did not receive Him. If you remember, we talked about the prologue. That's an overview of the entire Gospel. And this is one of the realities that we see in the prologue is that as Jesus is appearing, as He is teaching and preaching and performing miracles in the midst of His own people, they are unwilling to accept His message and they are rejecting Him. Jesus goes on to say in verse 12, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how you will believe if I tell you heavenly things? The earthly things that Jesus is referring to here is the need for salvation. It is the futility of a works-based relationship with God and being made acceptable to God by the outward appearance. And it seems unimaginable to us that those would be considered these earthly things but they speak of the effects of new birth as seen on this earth. The reality is this, is that when you and I come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, our external life is going to be different. Right? We're not going to talk the same. We're not going to act the same. Our attitudes aren't going to be the same. And the lifelong process that you and I are to live out and being sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit to be made like Him is the onward process of reflecting externally this internal work that has taken place inside of us. So this talk of new birth, this talk of regeneration is earthly in the sense that it reflects the outward change of life for those that come to know Him. But Jesus says, if you can't, if you can't believe these earthly things, how are you ever going to believe the heavenly things? And what Jesus is saying is, I'm about to blow your socks off because I'm going to tell you the heavenly things that you're just not going to be able to reconcile. As difficult as this is for you, the heavenly things that I'm going to tell you are going to be way beyond your realm of understanding. Things like relationship of the Father and the Son, 
of what God's kingdom is really like, about God's eternal plan of redemption, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the entire world, the Gentile nation, whom the Israelites despised, they were going to have an incredibly difficult time understanding and accepting these heavenly things. Now, this unbelief that Jesus is talking about here, there's two facets of unbelief. The first one is intellectual unbelief. While Jesus, excuse me, while Nicodemus accepted Jesus as a teacher, calling him rabbi, and as he affirmed the miracles that Jesus had performed as attested to by God, he simply rejects the message of regeneration. There is this intellectual unbelief. You know, in our world today, there are millions of people who intellectually say, I believe there is a God. I believe that Jesus came and lived. I believe that He died on the cross. Yet there's a barrier that exists that that makes it impossible for intellectual assent or agreement that leads to salvation ever be accomplished. There is this intellectual unbelief that says, there's a part of what you're saying I can agree with and understand, but there's a part of what you're saying I'm just going to simply reject. That is not true. You hear that? You ever hear that? This is the era of the millennial who says, what's true for you is not true for me. I define my own truth. If that works for you, Godspeed. But it doesn't work for me. I define my own truth. So there is this intellectual unbelief. Secondly, there is this spiritual unbelief. Nicodemus could not accept or admit that he himself was a helpless sinner. It was unthinkable for the proud members of the Pharisees, and most particularly the self-righteous, self-confessed elite of Israel, the Sanhedrin, to admit or acknowledge a need of helplessness as a sinner. He was viewed as a prominent spiritual leader by the people And for him to say, I am empty inside, I am devoid of any spiritual life, I stand on shaky ground, would be impossible for him to do. So there's this intellectual belief, there's this spiritual unbelief that makes him unwilling to humble himself and admit that he was in spiritual darkness and needed to be born from above in order to enter into the kingdom of God. You know, there's a lot of people in our world who will agree that sin is out there, and yeah, I'm probably a sinner in some, in some way, shape, or form, but hey, don't tell me that my life is going to condemn me to hell because I do a lot of good things. I don't steal. I don't kill. Faithful to my wife. I'm a good father, a good mother to my children. I help others when I can. Doesn't the balance of good versus evil in my life make me acceptable to God? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. There is this unwillingness rooted in spiritual unbelief that we need to humble ourselves and admit that we are spiritually bankrupt. This is Nicodemus's problem. This is the problem of the nation of Israel. This is the problem of mankind. We, apart from Christ, are spiritually bankrupt. So we have this problem. 
Secondly, number five here, we have this provision, the provision for the new birth. And Jesus is now going to begin to explain to Nicodemus the heavenly things, even though he has initially rejected this earthly message of the need to be born again. This provision, this heavenly provision that Jesus is going to talk about is himself. He is the provision. He is what Nicodemus needs. He is what the nation of Israel needs. He is what this world needs. He and He alone is the provision for our spiritual bankruptcy. Verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven, but He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, as we read this, and as we think about this in our own potential chronological order, it seems a little bit out of place. But we have to know that Jesus is speaking to a member of the Sanhedrin, a highly educated, influential man. He knows the objections he has. He knows how to cut to the chase and penetrate to the depth of the heart of the man. And so what he shares with Nicodemus is very simply this. He is affirming in this context of the heavenly provision that he is of divine origin. Judaism of Jesus' day included many stories about the saints of old who had ascended into heaven and descended back into the earth to share the insights into the ways and the plans of God. This is what was a part of what was circulating in Jesus' day, and this is very likely what is on Nicodemus' mind as he's hearing about this heavenly realm this heavenly reality and this need to be born again. You know, it's pretty sad that this kind of stuff still happens today. We hear stories all the time about people who have died and gone to heaven and had a meeting with God and then came back and now have some rare insight or some new revelation that you and I ought to be listening to. And oh, by the way, send the money because I need to get this message out everywhere. Or come and live on my compound and devote your life to me because I am the Messiah. That's how this stuff gets way off the track. I remember hearing this years and years ago. A very prominent, charismatic pastor shared a story as truthfully as the day is bright who said that he went to heaven and he saw this experience with God, had this experience with God, and he was in heaven in one of the realms and God flicked him with the finger and he flew across the room. And then God began to share with him this special message of revelation. There's a good Greek word for that. You want to know what it is? Phooey. Phooey. It didn't happen. We know that the revelation is perfect and what we hold in the Word of God known as our Bible. You can't add anything to it and you can't take anything away from it. It is a complete Revelation. So what Jesus is saying here is that no one has ascended into heaven and then returned to talk about the heavenly realities. What he is stating here is his authority of explaining these heavenly realities on the basis of his divine origin and the reality that he has always been in heaven and he has now descended from heaven to share with man the words of life the unchangeable message of hope and of good news that God is going to make a provision for the sin of man through the one and only Son of God. 
the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite designation for himself, and it affirms both his deity and his humanity. This is the one, this is the only one that can speak of these heavenly realities. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, In these last days God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And when God spoke through the Son, He closed the book. That was it. No more revelation to be added except what would be brought through the Holy Spirit's inspiration to these men who were called by God and chosen to record for us His eternal words. We also read in John 6.33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Not only has Jesus descended from heaven, His earth, excuse me, His true home, to speak of these seven realities, but we also know that He also ascends back into heaven. He's the only one that's ever going to do that. John 6, 62. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? If it blows your mind that I have come down from heaven, it's going to blow it again when I go back to where I came from. This is what Jesus is saying to the masses. So there is this provision of Jesus. It is in His divine origin. And now He foretells of His divine sacrifice. This heavenly reality that God is going to send an atonement for sin through the Son of Man. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now Jesus is using a very familiar story to Jews everywhere, but also to Nicodemus, an expert teacher. And so he's referring back to this time in Israel's wilderness wanderings, when they were so convinced that a life of slavery in Egypt was far better than what they were experiencing in the here and now. And so this story is recorded for us in Numbers chapter 21. Follow along. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And they became, then the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food. There is no water. And we loathe this miserable food, the manna from heaven that God had provided for them. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, yeah, no kidding, because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that He may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Would you have enjoyed being Moses? Oh my goodness. What a challenge that man had to endure. Verse 8 picks up, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, which is a big pole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if the serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Do you see the foreshadowing there all the way back in the wilderness wanderings? And what Jesus is referring to is very simply this. Just as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness to save you from certain death that has come from the bite of these serpents, so will the Son of Man be lifted up to save us from the death bite that comes from our sin. He is foreshadowing His own death. As Moses would lift up the serpent, it represented God's grace and His forgiveness 
to these unhappy, constantly bickering people who would rather be slaves in Egypt than to travel a journey of faith with a God who is leading them all throughout the day and the night. People looking to the pole to save them from their impending death after they were bitten reflects their faith in God's provision. So, by faith in God's provision, they were saved. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. Not because of serpents in the camp, but because of the sin of mankind and the lack of remedy to solve that problem for us. Those who look to the cross for God's grace and forgiveness and place their faith in God's provision will be forgiven and they will live. The emphasis here is that the Son of Man must, He must die to provide new birth. There is no other way. There is no works-based system. There is no ritualized system. There is no amount of ceremony. There is no amount of personal sacrifice or penance or anything else. The Son of Man must die to provide new birth. Verse 15 says, so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. The stricken Israelites were cured by obediently looking in hope and dependence on God's word at the elevated bronze serpent apart from any work of righteousness of their own. In the same way, you and I have to look by faith alone to the crucified Christ to be cured from sin's deadly bite. And when we do that, then we will in Him have eternal life. This reference to eternal life here is the first of 15 times that we will see this in John's Gospel. When you see eternal life, it speaks of the eternal union with God on the basis of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we have this provision for new birth. It's based upon His divine origin. It's foretold by His divine sacrifice. And He does all of this because of divine love. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That word, world, is a generic word that is used to signify mankind in general. It is not teaching about universal salvation. The same word for world is repeated Verse 17, that's how we know it's not speaking in terms of universal salvation. God gave His only begotten Son, His unique Son, the one whom there is none other like. He gave His Son to die. There is no amount of works, man-made religion. There is no systematized worship of God that will ever make up for the perfect and divine sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He must die. And God gave His one and only Son so that whoever would believe in Him Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, black or white, 
educated or not, it doesn't matter. Whoever will, by faith, claim atonement through the cross of Christ will be saved. There's a great tension here between Calvinism and Arminianism. It depends on what you want to focus on. To perish is to be stricken with eternal judgment, eternal separation from God. The contrast of that is eternal life, which is just simply permanent union with God. God has taken the initiative to love this sin-sick, sin-cursed world, not because of its merit, not because of an obligation, not because of its inherent value, but because of the sovereign choice of God. He loves. I'm reminded of Isaiah 53, the passage on the suffering servant. Very lengthy passage speaking prophetically about the Messiah that would come. Verse 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. His mission was to save that which was lost. Not to judge that which was still lost. Verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There was a common expectation in Judaism of the day that when the Messiah would come, he would judge and condemn the Gentile and the heathen and the Jews were going to be excused from the day of wrath. Again, Jesus is speaking to the heart and the perspective of Nicodemus when he's saying these words. He is drilling deep into the heart of Nicodemus that you will not be excused from the day of judgment. I didn't come in to judge the world. I came in to save the world. We read this backwards in the prophet, by the hands of the prophet Amos in chapter 5. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Israel had forgotten that one of the most central themes of God's covenant with Abraham was that they were to be a means of salvation to the rest of the world, that God would use them to share the good news with those other nations so that they could enjoy a relationship with Him just as the Israelites had. All the way back in Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant, I will bless those who bless you, and the, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not the Jewish families, but all families. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also 
hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Salvation was never intended to be limited to the nation of Israel alone. It was for the world, and the Messiah was going to come to bring this salvation to the world, not to condemn the world. Now this is interesting. This brings us up to number six in our outline and that is the third problem problem number three here point three verse 18 he who believes in him the son of man is not judged he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God you see that there what Nicodemus is hearing is that hey I'm not coming to judge the world the world has already been judged Unbelief brings judgment. Those who believe are saved from judgment. Those who don't believe have already been judged. The sentencing for this unbelief is in the future at the great white throne judgment. But the trial is underway now. Those who reject, those who don't believe, those who won't receive have already been condemned to perish for all of eternity. We read a little bit about the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. This future judgment is the consummation of unbelief. Unbelief in what? Well, we read that in the second half of verse 18 because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I want to tell you this. Christianity is exclusive. It is an exclusive group. There's only one way to get in. And that is by faith in Jesus Christ. All paths that are expressed in world religions don't lead to God. There's only one way. Christianity is exclusive. And it, uh, it is centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Intellectual belief is not going to break down the door of faith. It is not going to open people up to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is a life commitment. It is confidence in the work of Christ that makes me give myself to Him is what brings about saving faith. It is not looking to ourselves. It is looking to Christ alone. Unbelief brings judgment. And unbelief is rooted in the love of sin. Look what Jesus says here in, the, in verses 19 and 20. Now remember, who is He talking to? This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Notice it's capital light there in your Bible. And men love the darkness rather than the light 
for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. People don't reject Christ because they don't understand who He is. People don't reject Christ because they're ignorant about who He is. People reject Christ because they love their sin. Now, they'll find all kinds of ways to justify and rationalize and disagree with that, but this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. And He's talking to a a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, a religious leader of the Jews, the Jewish nation as a whole, who rather than coming to the light to have their sin exposed, would rather live in their sin and not be shown as a spiritual fraud. This is an indictment of Nicodemus and the Pharisees and the Jewish people as a whole. They are unwilling to receive the message because... They love their sin too much. They would rather continue in their path of futility than to be exposed as the fraud and the hypocrite that Jesus will expose them to throughout the rest of His ministry. They fear that kind of public exposure more than they do the judgment of God. They stand condemned in their unbelief and their unwillingness to come to the light, the only provision for their salvation. If they truly wanted to know the truth, then they would willingly have the light expose their sin to show the spiritual bankruptcy that is there, which would lead them to a faith relationship with the one and only Son of God. You know, we take this message for granted. We've heard this so many times. John 3.16. Oh my gosh. I think I could say that backwards if I thought about it long enough. But do we really understand what it means? It doesn't mean that you can come to Christ and accept some cheap grace and stick it in your back pocket and go live your life any way you want. It means that God made a way, one way, when there was no other way for you and I to be cleansed from our sin, to be spared from eternal punishment, and instead enjoy an eternal union with God. God, forgive us for taking this simple message of love and hope for granted. Father, forgive us for hoarding this message in our own lives, in our unwillingness to share with others. Father, forgive us for our unbelief, not so much in terms of our salvation, but our unbelief that your word is truth and that we are obligated, compelled, privileged to pursue obedience to the truth. Father, forgive us for our unbelief in your provision in your faithfulness, in your presence. Father, we acknowledge and confess that that creates a lack of gratitude and thankfulness to you for who you are and what you've done. In some way, we feel obligated or entitled to some special blessing to be rid from difficult circumstances or physical pain or suffering. No amount of suffering or discomfort we go through in this 
life on earth can ever compare to what Jesus went through on our behalf. Father, forgive us. God, I pray that every time we see a piece of bread or we see a bottle of grape juice, that it would be an instant reminder of your sacrifice for us. God, we thank you that you are a gracious and a loving and a merciful God. And we throw those words around, but they communicate such a deep truth about who you are. Father, we acknowledge and agree that we are utterly bankrupt apart from you in our life. Would you help us to live our lives with that truth in mind? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we